Hey everybody, welcome to Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. We have so much comic books and pop culture and fun, cool stuff to get to today. There is no slowing us down. We got to get right to it. Um, th this is going to be an exciting uh, uh, walk through some very near misses. I love that stuff. I love, well, there's actually one for sure miss and a couple of near misses that helped define the comic book history that we know and love. I, I, I always am in totally gripped by the idea that every studio passed on George Lucas and Star Wars. And if you go back and you uh, go through the history books and whether it's the giant making of Star Wars uh, coffee table books that I have or the Empire of Dreams, which is now on Disney Plus, which for years was only a part of the uh, the the collected uh you know, six movies when 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 he refinished the sequels. I mean, the the prequels. George Lucas finished the prequels after Revenge of the Sith. They put out a box set, a, a Blu-ray set, and on it was this amazing three-hour documentary called uh, Empire of Dreams. And I'm telling you, man, it is my favorite documentary. I've probably watched it two dozen times uh, in in the in the last decade that that over that like 15 years that it's been out. It is so informative, and, it, and and for me, it's a time capsule of my youth, again, because Star Wars was such an, an impactful movie on a generation, on, on the entire world. I mean, again, when I went to answer a question not too far back about, like, what was the number one movie on your birthday, you know, October 3rd, 1977, October 3rd, 1977, the number one movie was Star Wars. Again, the impact of that movie cannot be measured. I mean... We live in a world, look, we're Mandalorian, the Book of Boba Fett, all these Star Wars spinoffs are, they're so massively important. And it all started with this one movie that literally everyone in Hollywood passed on. George Lucas's friendship with the president of 20th Century Fox at the time, Alan Ladd. Alan Ladd Jr. said, I'll do it. I'll take a shot on you, George. And all throughout the making of Star Wars, it was white knuckle should we shut the production down when it was in England and the crew was turning on George and everyone thought he was making a stupid children's film? His own words. He says it in Empire of Dreams. Even his own friends in the editing, you know, the Martin Scorsese's, okay? These guys were not certain. The only guy who doubled down and told George, you got a real gem on your hands here. You got a hit was Steven Spielberg. But Co Francis Ford Coppola, who he was kind of a uh, uh, who, who mentored George. George was kind of a protege to him early on. Um, a, lo a lot of these guys, man, they just didn't believe. And no studio believed. Universal turned him down. Paramount turned him down. You know, whatever Sony was back in the day. MGM turned him down. Nobody was going to take a shot on George. But 20th Century Fox took a shot. And look at how it paid off for them. Uh, in in, in that, that period of time, you know, when they were the exclusive distributors from that, from then on, of the six Star Wars films that George would go on to do in total, including 1977. So you think that this stuff doesn't happen again? These these near misses that 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 show that not everybody believed in this surefire success. But again, when with Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, the only reason New Line is the producer, is the distributor, the maker of those films is because 20th Century Fox passed, Paramount passed, Sony passed, Warner Brothers passed. <clears throat> All these entities passed on Peter Jackson. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, Weinstein uh, 
brothers and, and Miramax agreed at one point to, to, to finance two films. That's as far as they got. But Peter Jackson, thank God, found a better deal from New Line. But yes, Universal passed, Warners passed, Fox passed, Sony passed, um, Paramount passed. I mean, Peter Jackson could not get arrested for this movie. And it took New Line, which was a mini-major, not a major, small movie. I mean, Austin Powers was their big hit. You know, that 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 was kind of the big movie that had put them on the map in the, in the late 90s. And, you know, they did stuff like Dark City and they did Blade, of course. But but those are, they were a mini-major. They were more known for jumping on and, and carrying independent releases than financing big mega powerhouse blockbusters that would end up being Lord of the Rings, this trilogy. And, of course... After the success of the first Lord of the Rings, uh, you know they, they they upped the budget on on the the Two Towers and on Return of the King because they saw oh my gosh when 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 the uh, the original Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, was released and the response they got, it's like wow we really have something here we can pour more more money into the post production, which is obviously why something like Return of the King is as lavish and amazing as it is at that point you you realize the return you're getting on your investment. So the, the pop culture is full of these near misses. I, I, I'm telling you right now, Robert Kirkman was telling me, I think he has maybe the most, most turned down property in The Walking Dead because the USA Network turned him down. Fox turned him down. FX turned him down. Showtime turned him down. Cinemax turned him down. HBO turned him down. ABC, CBS, NBC turned him down. Every network turned down Walking Dead. AMC stepped to the fore and said, we'll take it on and agreed to move forward. And some 20 seasons later, between Fear the Walking Dead, Walking Dead, the one with the kids, I don't know the name of that, Discover the Walking Dead, I don't know. But I mean, there's so much Walking Dead. It literally positioned that network uh, in a way that it was not prior. AMC was known for some great... Uh, you know, amazing, uh, critically acclaimed fare like Mad Men, but they didn't have that big, giant commercial blockbuster breakthrough. And and it's only because they got their shot because all those networks I just listed turned Robert Kirkman down, turned Frank Darabont down. I mean, they were teamed up trying to set this show up. And these people who, you know, you never know what you don't know until what you passed on becomes a giant hit. Now, in keeping with that in comic books today, I'm going to tell you three different tales because you guys seem to respond very positively to the the margin, the stuff between the margins, the stuff that people don't know about. I am fortunate enough that my obsession led me to every possible interview magazine, interview collection, uh, and back when I was coming up as a fan in the early 80s, the birth of the direct market, magazines like the Comics Journal, magazines like Comics Interview, uh, Fanographics put out complete collections, the history of the X-Men, you know, with these in-depth 30, 40, 50 page interviews with authors and artists. And you got to really get inside their minds and their brains. And occasionally they'd let something really cool slip that, that was coming up or some alternate, you know, version that they didn't get a chance to do, but it stirred your imagination in such a way that it, 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 it excited you as much as a comic book that you would read this interview. And, uh, and so I read tons of interviews. You know, now, I mean, just recently, I I was going to do, I did, I actually was booked to do a bunch of different interviews promoting some work I had coming out. And normally they're phone calls because they're going to be 
you know, transcribed on some websites because now that's how we consume things. We go to our different websites and, and we read an article, except I was told, oh, no, 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 all 12 of these are Zooms. You're going to be on video because video content is what people consume now. And it kind of makes me sad because I like to read stuff. And I subscribe to some sports sites and other, other uh, you know, different entertainment sites that still have the written word. I enjoy the written word. There's some mastery in the written word. But even in a, in a transcribed interview, you know, an in-depth interview that maybe went on for too many hours that can't possibly be edited down to that four-minute, uh, you know, segment on, on a newscast. I, I want to get into the meat of that three-hour interview. And, the, and quite frankly, there just isn't as many of them as there used to be. But thankfully, because of my, uh, I, look, I have a voracious appetite to read stuff and to, and to consume interview uh, information via interviews. And, and, and so I'm here sharing that with you guys. The, the, the untold history of the X-Men, where you learned about, uh, it's about, you know, it's several podcasts back, but the untold history of the X-Men or the X-Men untold history, whatever it was titled, where we learned, where I shared with you. Uh, and, and, and brought you the, the, the interviews and, and the sound bites and read out of the journals where, uh, you know, Dave Cockrum, Nightcrawler, Storm, so many of these uh, characters were from his sketchbook that were about to end up in a Legion of Superheroes spinoff at DC Comics. And if DC Comics doesn't piss Dave off by not giving him his artwork back, maybe you never see those characters. Maybe Storm, the, the Storm that you know and love, definitely never comes into play. And neither does Nightcrawler, who was wholly, completely formed by Dave, who he just, like I did with Cable and Deadpool, sold them in to, to, to Marvel. That's, that's what you do. When you have these characters, you are entering into a transaction. We're going to cover some of the Teen Titans today. And Cyborg and Starfire and Raven. Those were sold by Marv Wolfman and George Perez to DC Comics. They talk of getting together, jamming together, being, you know at least for a, for a period, in the same room creating these names and characters. Dave Cockrum created Nightcrawler by himself in his sketchbooks with all his notes. I created all my characters by myself and then, you know, presented them. But you're going to, but, but you're going to, you're going to see a couple of these near misses today. And I'm going to give you the quotes and, and the backstory. And, and, and we're going to start by diving into the X-Men and how you almost didn't get the greatest run in the history of comics, in my opinion, and certainly the most collected and, and the most celebrated, which is beyond my opinion. It gave you, dark, you know, Death of Dark Phoenix or the Dark Phoenix Saga, Hellfire Club, Wendigo, Days of Future Past, uh, all those great Magneto stories, Arcade, the trip, the, the, the year they took that the, the X-Men went around the world, you know, from, from Africa to Japan to Canada. Um, they went to, they went to Scotland I mean, it's uh, this international flavor, this book that literally took comic books by storm. Well, that creative team almost didn't show. And we're going to start there because here's what you don't know. The X-Men with Dave Cockrum, with Chris Claremont, this new launch, this international flavored, you know, hey, let's put them, let's put international characters in here to broaden the scope and sell to other territories. So we'll have an African character, a Canadian character, a Russian, a German, you know, an Irishman uh, Sunfire from Japan. We'll have an American Indian. Um, well, that book was teetering towards cancellation. Uh, and, and Marvel had some solutions. And you're going to hear about it right now. And you're going to hear about it directly from the uh, the the uh, participation, Terry Austin, in the X-Men Omnibus. 
I, and, and I believe this was first shown in one of the X-Men Marvel uh, uh, masterworks. But along the way, the editor, editors got so many of the contributors to this lore, this these m m epic, you know, legendary comics to actually write some recollections. Terry Austin, who who was the celebrated inker, embellisher, finisher of John Byrne, who made one of the finest, if not the finest, art team ever. Definitely the art team that inspired all that followed. I mean, literally. These guys inspired generation upon generation. And, uh, and Terry Austin, who became part of the shine and the gleam and the glory and the and the appeal of, of the of the artwork that really is why I mean the storylines were great but the way the book looked was was above all else the most uh the, the candy that brought everybody to the yard I mean that it, it was the sugary sweet treat that you didn't want to miss that John Byrne Terry Austin artwork when I buy John Byrne artwork and, and sometimes I buy it with inks by Dick Giordano or Carl Kiesel or, or Dan Green or, or Tony Dezeninga or, or you know, um, <clears throat> Gene Day. They're all really nice. None of them have the polish, the appeal, and none of them carry the pricing that Terry Austin on John Byrne did because it was magic. They made magic together, the two of them. And John Byrne is even on his own message boards, you know, wondered out loud maybe you're not a John Byrne fan maybe you're a John Byrne Terry Austin fan because we both united to make a very specific style but that that union that that was that started in mid 1977 that carried all the way through 78 through 79 and and up to the end of 1980 you know that their last issue comes out Christmas 1980 so so you get 3 years of these guys and they put the book on a monthly schedule 30 issues of these guys is amazing and i cannot you know, look it out, look it up, um, seek it out. The, 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 these collected works are everywhere. They have put them in omnibuses, masterworks, epic editions. You know, Dark Phoenix Saga alone has had multiple collections. But Terry Austin talks about his time on the X-Men. And I'm going to read to you some excerpts. In my omnibus, this is page 248. It says 248. And Terry wrote a thing. Uh, it's actually four pages called... Our cast of misfits. He had a lot of he had a lot of thoughts. He had a lot of thoughts. I'm going to share these to you. Hopefully, you don't know this. You're going to learn this. This is exciting. I didn't know it. It's potentially disastrous. Is is, is how this all turned out. But 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 enough things went right. And you should know before I read this to you, John Byrne had already been drawing multiple titles for Marvel. He was doing some fill-ins on Avengers. He was doing some fill-ins on Fantastic Four. He was doing Iron Fist. He had done an extended run. That was his kind of first big toothy, you know, where he, we, he sunk his tooth in and, 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 and teeth in and gave us this extended run and we saw him grow and his, his style was so appealing on Iron Fist. And that had all manner of different inkers uh, 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 on it. Some of them, especially towards the end, were, were Dan Green. Um, you know, that there were some others that, that weren't exactly shining representations or good matches with him. But uh, Terry didn't ink any of those Iron Fists. And at the same time, uh, John Byrne was doing Marvel Team-Up. He had started to do Marvel Team-Up, and, and and many of those were inked by a gentleman named Dave Hunt, who was slightly, I see now, overpowering, thick, but it was clean. It was very clean, and it, it, it honored John's work, and, and certainly fans like myself were buying all the Marvel Team-Ups they did. They, they, they've collected all of John's Marvel Team-Ups as well. I mean, at that point, you know, it's Marvel Team-Up, uh, 
Spider-Man and Adam Warlock, Spider-Man, Man-Thing, Spider-Man, you know, Power Man, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, I mean, Ms. Marvel, uh, Spider-Man, Yellow Jacket and the Wasp, uh, Spider-Man uh, uh, and Captain Britain. I mean, there's some really great, amazing Marvel team-ups, but Terry Austin wasn't anything that's important that you know that in the context of what I'm going to uh, I'm going to read to you right now. Uh, Terry Austin says that uh, as should be obvious from my above, you know, musings, uh, he muses about an Olympic team coming together that I'm going to save you. But his title is called Our Cast of Misfits, and it says the year was 1977, how well I remember it. He says, as, as should be obvious from the above twaddle, I really don't remember much about the year of 1977 at all, except that it was the year that the powers that be at Marvel Comics decided to cancel the recently revived X-Men comic book due to disappointingly low sales figures. So there it is. The Dave Cockrum penciled and Chris Claremont written internationally themed X-Men that I was pulling off the spinner rack was shipping bi-monthly. It was not a monthly book, okay? Uh, it, it, that and Daredevil, again, key to know, at the same time, Daredevil prior to Frank Miller is a bi-monthly book. The sales are such that they're only giving it to you six times a year. X-Men was six times a year. Right here, no one would know better than the guy who helped turn the tide on this book. He says, the powers that be decided to cancel the recently revived X-Men comic book due to disappointingly low sales figures. He goes on, I chanced to be in the Marvel offices that fateful afternoon when the fate of all mutant kind hung in the balance and editor-in-chief Archie Goodwin rushed up and imparted that dire bit of news to me in the hallway outside of his office. He said he thought he might be able to convince the folks upstairs, the financing folks, to give the book another chance. But he felt his only hope for the book's continued survival was to bump it from bi-monthly to monthly publication, believing that the two months between issues of a comic book was just too long a time to sustain the interest of most readers. They were doing this to facilitate Dave Cockrum, who needed extra time. It, 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 they say here, again, I'll just keep reading. Unfortunately, the artist on the book, Dave Cockrum, was incapable of turning the book out on a monthly schedule. Archie was a big fan of the Star-Lord feature that had just been previewed in the black and white magazine, Marvel preview, Star-Lord, that Chris Claremont, John Byrne, and Terry Austin did. He's a big fan of the Claremont, Byrne, Austin team from our black and white Star-Lord feature. And that was, it. oh, that work is amazing. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It, it had fanboys like me, like literally drooling. Like what, how gorgeous is this art? He, he asked, uh, it says, which had been published in an issue of Marvel preview earlier that year. I'll just say, I'll read the entire thing without my commentary. Unfortunately, the artist of the book, Dave Cockrum, was incapable of turning the book out on a monthly schedule. As a big fan of the Chris Claremont, John Byrne, Terry Austin team from our black and white Star-Lord feature, which had been published in an issue of Marvel Preview earlier that year, Archie then asked if I would be interested in inking the X-Men book if John Byrne could be convinced to pencil it. To make a long story short, I was, and John could, and thus, comic book history was made that day. Then you drop down and Terry says, well... Almost. Terry's a great writer. This is this is really well communicated. He says, Shortly before we were, we were to begin work on the X-Men, John Byrne journeyed down from his home in Calgary, Alberta, to visit Marvel. 
He and I had been introduced to each other by Archie Goodwin at a New York City comic book convention the previous year when we were working together on Star-Lord. We had gotten along, so I hopped on the Metro North to NYC to spend the day with John Byrne. I had scarcely gotten my foot over the doorstep at 575 Madison Avenue, the address of Marvel, when John Byrne outlined to me the plan that he had formulated during his trip south. He believed that the Byrne-Austin style of art would be such a shocking departure from the Dave Cockrum style that the fans had become accustomed to. Now, Dave was more of a brush inker, had a not as crisp and clean and precise uh, a pen line as Terry did. Terry is the epitome of slick and clean and crisp inking. It is, it is a line only he has been able to pull off his entire career. And everyone else who has aspired to just cannot nail. Maybe They've tried. They cannot emulate. There was actually an entire group of up-and-comers in the mid-80s who were trying to pull off Terry. He, His talent was such that I have never seen anybody emulate what he did. The uh, continue here. So, so John believed that their combined art style would be such a shocking departure from Dave Cockrell that fans had become accustomed to, that it would serve not to increase sale, but to lower them, drive away the readers that the book already had. So he proposed that instead of hint of, of me, Terry Austin, joining him, John Byrne, on X Men, that I switch places with the anchor of Marvel Team Up the other monthly book that John was penciling at the time. Again, John was knocking them out. Spider-Man, Mr. Captain Britain, Spider-Man, Yellow Jacket, Spider-Man, Ms. Marvel, Spider-Man, Man-Thing, Spider-Man, Power Man. I mean, Spider-Man, Thor, Spider-Man, Havoc. I mean, he was he was really, um, you know, producing at a high level. And all of those books, literally now that I think of it, Dave Hunt did some, Ricardo Villamonte, Tony Dezeninga, Al Gordon, all manner of different inkers were jumping on to ink John. He did not, he, Dave Hunt maybe did the most. He did, you know, Iron Fist, the Iron Fist issues as well. But but the, the, they were, the, he definitely didn't have, he, month to month in, it could be a different inker. So he's trying to pull Terry to do Marvel Team Up with him. And look, Marvel Team Up was the better seller at the time. Spider-Man books were outselling X-Men, okay? The X-Men doesn't laugh everybody until these two cats get on it. John, uh, Terry Austin said, truthfully, so, so, so responding to this pitch that don't ink me on the X-Men, I want you to become my dedicated inker on Marvel team up. This is John Burns imagining of how he's going to alter this entire deal that Archie Goodwin is, is presenting. So here's where Terry says, truthfully, that sounded peachy keen to me. Although I really liked Dave Cockrum and Chris Claremont's X-Men, I always got an extra kick out of working on characters that I had loved as a comic book reading kid. And the young mutants at Xavier's Academy at the point uh, when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's X-Men were doing it, heck, even Roy Thomas and Neil Adams just weren't my cup of tea. The prospect to getting of, of, of getting to ink Spider-Man and a different guest star from the Mary Marvel Universe every month was mighty appealing. And that led me to readily agree to go along with John's plan. Now, all we had to do was convince Archie Goodwin. Our hard, hard exclamation point. Now, all we had to do was convince Archie Goodwin. Boom. Confident in the seemingly unimpeachable soundness of John's logic, we bounded noisily into Archie's office where he was bent over his desk, head lowered, seemingly lost in a world of paperwork that littered his desk. Undaunted, 
John launched into his spiel. With great enthusiasm, many dramatic gestures, various sound effects, perhaps a few hastily assembled charts and graphs explaining to Archie the way that things were going to be. While I stood nearby smiling and nodding at what I hoped were the appropriate junctures. So Terry's sitting there cheering John on. He, he wants Marvel team up too, okay? <clears throat> at the close of this lengthy discourse, as John reeled about the room, panting for breath, Archie, and in parentheses it says, God bless him, looked up from his paperwork and simply said, no, no. And that, my friends, is how I almost missed out on being part of one of the most highly regarded runs in the history of comic books. Make no mistake, however, once firmly ensconced on the X-Men, I became the biggest fan and defender of these new kids, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Phoenix, Colossus, and Storm, that there could ever be. And naturally, I became an even bigger fan of Chris Claremont and John Byrne. If you have purchased this book, then I probably don't have to explain to you how well these two titanic talents played off each other and how they took our favorite mutants to places undreamt of by ordinary mortals such as you and I. I was excited and entertained when Chris began calling me periodically to dramatically act out his plots for the next dozen issues or so over the telephone. I knew then that he would be able to generate a seemingly endless supply of great ideas for the book. Little did I then suspect that he would be able to do, do so for decades to come. As time has gone on, I became more impressed with how effortlessly Chris was able to slip into the heads of our diverse cast of characters to craft their dialogue so that each spoke with their own distinct individual book. Similarly, I was already a fan of John's obvious storytelling design and drawing skills. I would come to appreciate his subtler gifts, like the finely nuanced facial expressions he imparted to our cast of misfits while simultaneously gifting each of them with their own unique body language. Simply put, while Chris was able to divulge personality through carefully crafted dialogue, John did so visually by ensuring that none of the characters ever stood, sat, moved, or ran like any of the other characters did. Chris and John may have been relative newcomers to the world of professional comics, but they certainly knew their stuff. I think it's appropriate for me to interject here, again, this is Terry Austin, that everyone on the creative side of this book was a terrific talent in their own right, and we were indeed lucky to have had each and every one of them as part of our team. The colorist, uh, Glynis Ween, the letterer, Tom Orzakowski. Um, <clears throat> they, uh, he goes on in details you know, how much he would uh, discuss with John, you know, about what they were doing. Uh, he says, and here, here's, here's the meat of this. My time on this book wasn't entirely limited to inking either, as I was called to fill in a gap in the penciling department for time to time. For example, John Byrne would shortly develop into an artistic talent without peer, but at the time of our first issue, he had some sort of artistic block about drawing likenesses. I was pressed into service when the script called for a view screen image of President Jimmy Carter in the conference room with the Fantastic Four and the Avengers concerning the crisis in the depths of space that the X-Men were attempting to deal with. Small items such as this presidential confab aside, I was also privileged to pencil and ink three covers that graced over this title over the years. I remember that the first such assignment, the X-Men Trapped in a Giant Pinball Game by Arcade, came with a layout by the dear sweet Dave Cockrum, sternly mock admonishing me not to screw things up. Um, uh, and ended by saying, this is your big chance, glory or a goat. Um, goat meant something different back then. Goat meant like you messed up, not greatest of all time. I'll leave it to you folks to decide which side of the equation I came closest to achieving. My second cover assignment came in the form of a last-minute emergency when the intended cover penciled by John temporarily was lost in the mail, uh, the cover to X-Men 142. My third 
And final cover remains a puzzler, strangely. I have no recollection of how he came to depict Kitty Pride. This is the last issue John Byrne and Terry Austin would do together in uh, Kitty and a malevolent alien slugging it out on Christmas Eve. Perhaps I should characterize it as a Halloween miracle since it would have been drawn roughly three months before the above-referenced holiday routinely best known for the occurrence of happy surprises. And uh, here is where he confirms for everybody that, that John Byrne inked a page in the X-Men annual. John Byrne had a chance to do a little inking on the book as well, thanks to yours truly. It bothered me that I was inking the first X-Men annual penciled by George Perez, and that would be the first X-Men project since our run began that John would have nothing to do with. So at a weekend Canadian comic book convention, I asked John if he would like to take one of George's pages home to ink it. To my utter astonishment, he presented me with the inked page the very next morning at the show. Proof positive that he was not only one of the fastest pencilers in the game, but one of the quickest inkers as well. And he goes on to recollect all his great memories on this book. But think about it. John Byrne figures, for whatever reason, and we're, we're only given a brief glimpse, he figures that... He's overthought the project that Terry and his beautiful com combination with John's pencils is such a, an artistic departure that it would drive the fans that the X-Men did have that were keeping the book, you know, going at its current rate. And little did he know that fans like myself, because again, when John Byrne and Terry Austin take over the X-Men, it's the second part of a two-part story that started in space, which introduces the DC echo of the Legion of Superheroes, the Imperial Guard. Again, Dave's last issue, he mimics his greatest success at DC Comics. I mean, they are Colossal Boy, looks like Colossal Boy. The Star Boy is made of stars. The Lightning Lad um, guy, it, it looks like Lightning Lad. I mean, he really, Dave Cockrum danced, the, danced right on the line as much as you possibly could, but it's created 30 plus years, nearly 40 years of these great characters called the Imperial Guard that would not on any level exist without... Dave being on the Legion of Superheroes, but the but Dave leaves. He leaves X Men 107, X Men 108. The new team comes comes in. I was there. I pulled it off the spinner rack. I couldn't believe it. This crisp, clean artwork. I, I I did. I felt a little guilty that I I liked it maybe a little more than the Dave Cockrum stuff, which I like, uh, which I loved. I absolutely loved all of Dave's issues. I was with the book as a kid. You know, when I pulled it off the spinner rack, giant size X Men number one. I love the new characters. I love the lush uh, quality to, to Dave's art. Beautiful artist, but this new Burn Austin dynamic that I had seen on the Star Wars, the Star Lord, Star Lord one shot, which was just impeccable. Um, you know, I've actually been collecting pages from that book now, and again, they are very hard to obtain. But John Byrne and Terry Austin were a match made in heaven, and the fact that John Byrne tried to get Terry to not ink him on the X-Men, I, I, I got to be honest, recently I was presented some original art, there's one issue, it's during the Japan storyline, it's the first part, when they battle Moses Magnum, and uh, Terry did not ink the issue, it was an inker who was very talented named Ricardo Villamonte, and uh, the inks, it the artwork just doesn't look the same, and there's these forums that I go on that go, you know, it wasn't Terry Austin that made John Byrne special, oh yes it was, on this run it absolutely was. John is prolific and talented and enormously gifted, exactly as Terry said. But together, the two of them made an artistic impression, a historic impression that uh, I don't think has ever been equaled. M most people who ha have come close have tried to emulate what they did, but 
John and Terry are still the gold standard. Like I said, these pages, the average page now is on on eBay, an average page, six panels, some cool stuff on it, not a breakout page, not a breakout figure. It goes for $40,000. You get out to the breakout figures, the splash pages, you're looking at 90, 100,000. Um, there was a double page spread that I loved with the X-Men on it from the circus issue. I think that maybe, you know, 109, 110, uh, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. 111. And, uh, I hesitated. It was listed at $75,000 in 2017. Then two years later, I swung back. It's now a hundred and now it's gone. Okay. So, so the stuff, the stuff is valued at a high level. It is collected at a high level. Their work is some of the most collected, easily the most collect. There is no collection of X-Men stories that have come close to being duplicated in terms of hardcover collections, softcover collections, digests, reprints. Um, this, this is the run of the ages and it almost didn't happen. And I guarantee you it would not have been as successful. Again, I passed on those Ricardo Villamonte pages. Not that they're not nice pages. It's just I know what they would have looked like had Terry been the finisher. And that's the stuff that defined that age, that run to me. So that's what I want. That's what I crave. And ironically, this is in, in this same period of time, another great run uh, almost didn't happen because the artist was committed to doing another run. And that's really why he left his post at Marvel in the first place to go to DC Comics. And I'm talking of the incredible George Perez. What I'm about to read from you to you is also excerpts from his own writing as he wrote two different forewords to the hardcover collections of his Justice League run. Because when George left, he'll, he'll, he'll tell you in his own words here, when George left Marvel Comics, it was with the promise of going on to greater glory at DC where there was more of a need he would stand out. As, as talented as George was and, as, and as, as much weight as he was carrying at Marvel, it was getting crowded over there. Walt Simonson was coming on strong. Frank Miller, you know, John Byrne, the young guns were, were getting, it was getting crowded. George had been an assistant when he started his career out to another very um, popular, very, uh, uh, a guy who was booked all the time named Rich Buckler. And George came up as his penciling assistant and then broke out to be his own and got short stories and built his resume up until he was doing entire issues. And as he'll tell you here, he got a reputation for drawing team books and for liking to draw team books. So I'll let you all, and, and this is about the Justice League and the Teen Titans and how the Teen Titans almost didn't happen. And because of the Teen Titans, we didn't get the extended Justice League run. So this falls into a, like a double near miss. That near miss on the X-Men, I, I believe, was would have been catastrophic. Uh, again, nothing that John Byrne has done at that time has reached the heights of the X-Men work. And, and, and what also Terry doesn't say here that he says in a couple of the comics journal interviews that he gives, he talks openly. It's, a, it's an interview with John Byrne. Terry Austin is present at the interview. It's this famous comics journal interview. And Terry says that he was actually, and then I went back to the credits to, to look and it's sure enough, Terry was a finisher. He did more penciling on the arcade issues. The numbers escape me. And uh, he details the breakdowns. John did light breakdowns on two issues to catch up on the schedule. And to have somebody as confident and as accomplished as Terry to step in. And as a kid, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know one iota that, that Terry acted more as a finisher over John's breakdowns. Because it all ended up looking the same because of the quality control and the line capability that Terry was giving us. So here's George Perez. And he writes here, 
the, the, uh, DC Comics did two collections in the about 2005. They did two collections. DC Comics Classics Library, Justice League of America by George Perez, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And uh, he writes forwards in both of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share with you here, from his perspective, how this all came to be. And uh, again, it's, it's, it's just so compelling when you read from the actual, you know, author of the work, of the, of the line art, and, and you see, and, and you realize, okay, so, so he left Marvel to do the Justice League. He writes here, you know, for anyone who's followed my 35-year career, this is George Perez writing, None of these statements above. It says, I love drawing superheroes. Or, to belabor the obvious, I love drawing lots of superheroes. Okay. He then says, for anyone who has followed my 35-year career, none of these above statements can possibly come as a surprise to you. With a resume that includes 10 years on such multi-character series, such as The Avengers, The Fantastic Four, The Inhumans, X-Men, JLA, New Teen Titans, Ultra Force, Crisis on Infinite Earths, The Infinity Gauntlet, The War of the Gods, History of the DC Universe, and Legion of Three Worlds, these statements come off more like a constant of the universe, accepted as a given, something that always was and likely always will be, speaking of his penchant for liking to draw team books. But it always, but it wasn't always so. And, uh, and he says, when he started out, he really wanted to draw Batman because his favorite book was Detective Comics. And so then he says, flash forward, I'm jumping down a paragraph, flash forward to 1980. I was working at Marvel Comics, a seasoned veteran of almost six years who had developed a reputation for taking on the books that few artists of that time wanted to draw. The character-heavy team books with their attendant casts of thousands. I had done no work for DC Comics at that time, but that was all about to change when my former editor and new friend Marv Wolfman, who is now crossing the street to work at DC Comics, offered me a chance to work on a team book. Could it be that I could finally get my chance to draw the one team book that started me on my career path? Was I actually going to be offered the Justice League of America? Alas, no. Justice League had a regular artist, Dick Dillon, who had been drawing the book with nary a fill-in for many years after replacing longtime artist Mike Sikowski and looked poised to continue on the series nonstop for years to come. Truth be told... I was buying Just Sleek month in, month out. It was always Dick Dillon. He hit all of his marks. Um, he was a very, you know, kind of balanced Silver Age sensibilities with Bronze Age sensibilities. I liked him. I didn't love him. But certainly his work is outstanding and he defined the Justice League for years. The team book that, Mark was off that Marv Wolfman was offering me was a relaunch of one that was among my favorites when I was a kid but had already gone through a, an unsuccessful revival. I saw little reason to hope that a second relaunch by Marv and myself would fare much better. I, could only, I only accepted the offer on the condition that should Dick Dillon ever decide he needs a vacation, I would be the first artist that DC called to fill in for him on the Justice, Justice League of America. And that's how I ended up drawing the new Teen Titans, a consolation prize of sorts that ended up being far more successful and career-defining than I or anyone could have ever predicted. But hopes of drawing the Justice League still lingered, and only days after coming to terms with Marvin DC, the unthinkable happened. Dick Dillon passed away. He died of a heart attack, leaving the JLA without an artist. Honoring their agreement, DC immediately offered me the title. It was my dream come true. But in light of the tragic circumstances, a bittersweet experience. 
So now after a brief tenure drawing Firestorm backups in Flash, I was now drawing two team books for DC, the fledgling relaunch of an untested book that would ultimately dramatically change DC's and my future and the career and my career path for years to come. Justice League writer Jerry Conway had stockpiled scripts for several issues for the book. The first few were written as full scripts because that played to Dick Dillon's strengths and preference. I was used to working Marvel style from plots. And working from uh, detailed scripts, especially ones not written for me, was a challenge. I attempted to find ways of inserting bits of my personality into the storytelling, and I must say that I learned quite a bit from doing this this, this way. Since the dialogue was already said, I would add or suggest inflection through body language, or I'd alter the speech cadence by spitting dialogue into multiple panels instead of containing it in the one described in the script. It's amazing what you can do with a raised eyebrow or a slight bend in the shoulder. I felt like a director in, in a play trying to bring out some new nuance to dialogue without alt altering a single word. Artistically, and with the admittedly overcritical eye of an older, more experienced version of myself, my first few Justice League issues look crude to me now. I had been working with inker Frank McLaughlin, who had been inking Dick Dillon through the issues at the time. During my first years at Marvel, um, he had worked with Frank, Mc Frank McLaughlin through his first years at Marvel, and he, in parentheses, he had been inking Dick Dillon on the Justice League at the time. But I don't think we meshed well. It is to Frank's credit that he didn't run for the hills when he saw that overly intricate artwork that I was throwing at him. Replacement inker John Beatty seemed to work a bit better on my pencils, but I think my own style was still in need of a lot of refinement, a polish that only years of experience would hopefully provide. However, a fan reaction to my initial issues was any indication there was no denying the energy I seem to be bringing to the book. Even though my ever-increasingly work, my ever-increasing workload totally obliterated any hope of getting remotely close to the long runs set by Dick Dillon and Mike Sikowski, readers could sense that this was no mere assignment for me. I wanted to be here. There was no angle I would not attempt, no background too intricate, no character beneath my notice. The first issues featured not only the Justice League, but members of the Justice Society of America and Jack Kirby's New Gods, including Darkseid. And there were more characters waiting in the wings. Shaggy Man, Red Tornado, T.O. Morrow. And I was loving it. And the fans could tell. My fellow pros could tell. This George Perez kid loves superheroes. Let me tell you something. Every summer... I've mentioned this before, DC had Justice League and Justice Society crossover. It was when they would have a team-up. It was always a summer team-up. And uh, the year pre previous, uh, 1977 or one of the recent years, they had teamed up with the Legion of Superheroes. I think 1978, they had teamed up with the Legion of Superheroes. So it was the Justice League, the Justice Society, and the 30th you know, century DC superheroes from the future, the Legion of Superheroes. And they battled one of my favorite villains called Mordrew. And so then, in 1980, this summer, Dick Dillon did, in fact, draw the first chapter, which brought the Justice League and the Justice Society together as they answered the call of a threat from Darkseid by the New Gods. And then, I, I mean, I, I literally, there was, no, there was no dearth of information like I told you guys. This is back in the days where you didn't know things till you turned the corner and you picked up that comic. There was no notice that George Perez was coming because Dick Dillon died in between issues. So George was hired after Dick had drawn the first chapter of a three-part Justice League, Justice Society, New Gods crossover. You know, there was no announcement that, that the Titans were coming as yet. It was just George was gone from Marvel. He left. Shortly, uh, I think Avengers 202. He did the Avengers 200, then Avengers 201, 202. He spent his last year at Marvel. 
his last years there finishing up doing Marvel 2 and 1 the epic X-Men annual and this last year's worth of stories introducing Taskmaster um, and, and the big giant anniversary issue on the Avengers and it was great fans oh I was crazy about it but then he was gone and now he was emerging at DC and lo and behold that one day I turn around and I see that he's done the cover of the Justice League it's got Darkseid screaming it's got all the characters positioned around his big head I open it up, oh my gosh, George Perez, one of my favorite artists of all time, is now drawing the Justice League. So what George is saying is right. And I, I could tell Frank McLaughlin and him, they weren't a great fit, but he's right. John Beatty, a few issues later, was was really nice, really polished. They made for beautiful pictures. Well, in the second volume, because obviously George did a great deal of these stories, in the second volume here, I'll recount uh, how George talks, why he couldn't be the Justice League guy, his dream book. Finally offered it, but he couldn't commit. So this isn't just a near miss. It's an absolute, like, you fulfilled your dream briefly, but you had to leave it behind because there was something better. George says, For those of you who picked up the first volume of the DC Classics Library Collection, Justice League of America by George Perez, welcome back. For those of you who didn't, well, just sit back, go out right now to your local comic comic shop, buy that book, and catch up. No rush. We'll all wait. He says, uh, this is it. This is my entire run on what was to be my dream fanboy project. It only lasted a relatively small number of issues, far from the lengthy lengthy runs of my predecessors, Mike Sikowski and Dick Dillon, whom I had hoped to equal, if not surpass someday. So George wanted to do the Justice League for an extended period, and why not? Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Aquaman, Green Lantern, Flash, I mean, Martian Manhunter, Zatanna, Elongated Man. What a killer cast. And why was this, you might ask? Or you might not. And hey, I've got to fill up space here, so you're getting an explanation anyway. I'm afraid I have to blame the Teen Titans. As I wrote in the first volume's intro, which I'm now assuming you've read, right? I initially took on the new Teen Titans on the condition that I'd be able to draw the Justice League somewhere down the line. Of course, when the untimely death of Dick Dillon got me on Justice League as a regular artist, things started changing quickly. Dropping the Avengers, the one Marvel title I was drawing at the time, I figured I could handle the workload of two monthly team books, but I soon found out otherwise. The new Teen Titans proved to be more popular than than I or Marv Wolfman could have ever imagined, and the personal commitment I was putting into that series was taking up more and more of my time. I found that my work speed was being diminished exponentially as I attempted to concentrate on the quality of my work rather than the quantity. Something had to give, and it became all too obvious that I would have to give up the Justice League. It wasn't really much of a surprise. After all, I had already put the kibosh on having an uninterrupted run on the series. I already had fill-in issues done by other artists, and there was talk of adding a Titans miniseries and a Titans annual to my already full schedule. My days on the Justice League were definitely numbered. However, I had one last Justice League dream that I wanted to fulfill. Having already drawn the 200th issue of Marvel's Avengers, I wanted to do the same for JLA's 200th. And And to do that, I was going to need some help. The name of this volume is a bit of a misnomer. You see, while it may say Justice League of America by George Perez, Volume 2, on the masthead, the issues reprinted here also feature the great work of other artists who helped get me to what would be the finish line of my Justice League run. One by necessity, the others by design. The former, the hugely underrated Keith Pollard, was filling in for me on issue 197, the final chapter of another JLA-JSA team-up. When he fell into some scheduling difficulties of his own, I had to pencil the last half of that issue, pulling me in the unusual position of being the fill-in issue, of being the fill-in artist for my own fill-in artist. The latter list of artists comes into play when JLA 200 was conceived as a triple-sized jam. 
Written by longtime scribe JLA Jerry Conway, JLA scribe Jerry Conway, divided into chapters just like the original Justice League stories of my youth were done. But with each chapter illustrated by a different artist, I'd be drawing the main story, the framework with the United League members, with the team members paired off against each other in individual vignettes. Talk about feeling intimidated. I was sharing the stage with such industry legends as Joe Kubert, Gil Kane, Jim Apero, Carmen Infantino, and Dick Giordano, as well as legends in the making, Brian Boland and Pat Broderick. It was all I could do to keep up the pace that my work could stand out against such a luminous collection of talent. I did my best, uh, aided considerably by Inker Brett Breeding. Hopefully some of that stuff still holds up now, two decades later. Justice League of America 200 was definitely a dream fulfilled for me and would cap my run as the interior artist on the world's greatest superheroes. At the request of JLA editor Len Wein, I would continue drawing covers for the series on and off until uh, 20 issues later, Justice League 220. As was the very first JLA story I drew, my last cover was covering the JLA-JSA team-up of that summer, bringing my brief but enjoyable JLA career full circle. While I would draw an occasional Justice League-themed illustration here and there throughout the years, I would not get to draw another actual Justice League story until the 21st century when I finally got to realize my fanboy dream with the publication of the Justice League Avengers teaming up DC's greatest with Marvel's mightiest. Obviously, that story is not reprinted here, but I'm figuring a copy can be found somewhere. And that would do it for me in the Justice League, at least for now. I've been around long enough to know that never is never, uh, is, is, is ever never in this industry. I've been along... <laughs> I'll restate that. I've been around long enough to know that never is ever never in this industry. There may be another Justice League story waiting for me in the future. And I certainly wouldn't be averse to bringing to life scenes featuring a man of steel hobnobbing with an Amazon princess, a dark knight, sharing forensic details with a winged alien, a ring-bearing member of an intergalactic police corp paving the way with a scarlet speedster, a six-inch tall scientist whispering to the ear of a caped sorceress. And who knows, I may be asked to write yet another introduction to a collected edition of those stories. Maybe there will be a volume three after all. Well, that was actually, that second volume is December 2009. George retired a couple years ago. He's no longer doing interiors, so these will be the standing Justice Leagues that we know of, that we enjoy. As a fan... I didn't know what the Teen Titans would be. I wanted the Justice League. I wanted George on the Justice League. Once I got it, I, I, I couldn't have enough of it. He brought all that Marvel dynamic Kirby energy over to DC Comics and his Justice League works. The works collected here are some of the most dynamic, amazing uh, 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 stories the Justice League ever saw. They are held by many as their favorite run in the Justice League. Okay, enough to make two volumes, right? I mean, basically somewhere between 13 issues worth of story. And uh, for that, I'm forever indebted to George for biting off so much. And 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 look, it's like he said, the Teen Titans just took off. They became so popular. It was that era. They became DC's X-Men that had to keep up, had to keep pace with what John Byrne and Terry Austin established on the X-Men. And they did. Titans goes on, if you can believe this, to outsell Justice League, become DC's number one comic overall. So when George says that it became more, more popular than you could ever imagine, you know, uh, he's not kidding, and it must be really special for him to have seen Cyborg, who he created with Marv Wolfman, join the Justice League uh, in the later years. I mean, first, in the mid-80s, a few years after he was created, five years after he was created, he was in the cartoon Super Friends, featured as part of their kind of Justice League-centric lineup on the Super Friends cartoon and part of the Super Powers toy line. But over the years, he's been very ensconced in the Justice League. Cyborg has definitely a huge profile in the Justice League, you know, in, in Justice League lore. But uh, so that the, the Teen Titans prevented us from getting more Justice League. Uh, 
And, uh, and, and were it not for Dick Dillon's untimely passing, we would never get George's Justice League at all. So you heard it in Terry Austin's words, how he almost didn't become part of history on the X-Men. And I most certainly maintain the X-Men does not get the same traction. I don't know who John Byrne had in mind in regards to who would ink him on X-Men. It's not mentioned. Is it Dan Green? Is it Gene Day? Is it some of these other guys who are doing pencil? It, it definitely wasn't Ricardo Villamonte as good as he was. They weren't a great mix. He inked him once on a Marvel team-up and then on that X-Men issue I'm mentioning and then never again. I just maintain, especially I have spent so many hours poring over the original art, the covers, the interiors. I have splash pages, some of the best interior pages in the book. Poring over the combination, the finished line art. I, I have come to admit that I'm maybe as much of a Terry Austin fan as I am a John Byrne fan. Nonetheless, the two of them together are what was necessary to pull off the greatness, to define the greatest run in the history of the X-Men. Recently in one of his blogs, uh, Tom Brebort, who's a senior editor over at Marvel Comics, he may have a bigger title than that, but at, le at the very least, he is a very important senior editor. He does a blog, and he talked about when they killed Jean, Jean Grey, it was a moment for a generation. We couldn't believe that she died, that she was gone. And again, marked by that beautiful artwork and those powerful moments that Byrne and uh, 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 Terry Austin committed. But I'm going to tell you, even as a fan, following the funeral issue, X-Men 138, where they say goodbye to her, to follow up with the two Wendigo issues and then the gut punch that was Days of Future Past, probably the most brilliant standalone. I mean, today, Days of Future Past will be a 12-part or 22-part crossover. I meant it was a two-part, you know, 40-page story that has resonated for 40-plus years. Genius. And then it was over. And we've been yearning for it ever since. The last, the third story, the near miss, which was an absolute miss, it involves myself and Jim Valentino. And I believe, had we done this book, there'd be no Image Comics. I think what we this book would have been popular. It would have been successful. But I've mentioned it in other podcasts how I, Jim and I, were desperate to launch our own new title. We loved working with each other. We had just come off What If Number 7. What If Wolverine Was an Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.? It had gone over huge. It had sold big numbers. It was one of the top-selling books for Marvel that month. The response was enormous. Um, it only added to our profiles that, that we were guys that could move the needle for Marvel. There was murmurings that there was they were wanting to do a Young Avengers book. I was doing, at the time, the New Mutants annual that featured Namorita, the cousin of Submariner. I'd always loved her, and I had no idea how much I would love drawing her. And if you've seen that New Mutants annual, it was part of the Atlantis attacks. I, I want to say maybe it was annual number seven, but don't, don't quote me on that. The New Mutants annual uh, with Namorita, the Atlantis attacks tie-in. Uh, I mean, I just, I had such a good time. I just, I, she was my favorite part of drawing the book. I love Namorita. So the idea that she, she was one of the young Avengers being, you know, whispered that was going to be part of this new young Avengers lineup, which was going to be Nova, Speedball, Vance Astro, young Vance Astro, and Namorita. Those were the four that were locks. That's what we had heard. That's what our Whisper Network told us that they were taking pitches on. So <laughs> getting a little excited there. Jim Valentino and myself put together a comprehensive pitch. Jim typed it up. We we would sit across from each other in the couches that we had in the studio that we shared in Garden Grove, California. And we would talk about character development, issues, cliffhangers, villains, new casting characters, 
many of the characters that you would see throughout the Guardians of the Galaxy and later on in Shadowhawk and many of the characters that you would see in X-Force and later Youngblood were part of our shared proposal. Again, further enhancing that we are selling these ideas to the publisher. I didn't jam and create Cable with someone else or Deadpool with someone else. They were featured characters that I was putting in other series. Youngblood characters like Cougar, Brahma, these character villains, they were all going to appear in this Young Avengers series that Jim and I were confident Marvel would pick up. And I would be able to draw Nova, who I loved as a kid. I loved Richard Ryder. I thought Nova was an untapped superstar, and I was dying to draw him. Speedball, a Steve Ditko creation. I could not wait to go all Spider-Man crazy on his um, on 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 his his uh, his design and his character because I was going to bring all that Ditko energy. Because again, it's just Speedball was another kind of uh, uh, extension of Steve of Steve Ditko's art. In, in as unique a way as Spider-Man was. So I was trying to channel all this energy. Namorita, Vance Astro from Guardians of the Galaxy, your young Vance. Um, you know, Nova and, 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 and Speedball, and then we would round out the cast of characters. Firestar, that's it. Also, Firestar was, I knew there was another. She was committed as well. Created for the Spider-Man and his amazing friends. They had tried her out in a miniseries. They, they were slowly integrating her more into the Marvel Universe, and she was definitely on tap to be part of this. I felt like it would have been a blockbuster. It would have been part of their new launch. You guys came to know them in 1990 as the New Warriors. And and Jim was not doing that. Jim was doing Guardians of the Galaxy. I was committed to New Mutants. What happened was my editor felt like I had already given him a commitment. And um, the executive editor, Mark Grunewald, who had hired me at a convention in Oakland, California in 1987, had called me up and said, Rob, you are, everyone's looking forward to you doing the New Mutants. Stick with that path. Stick with with that path. We love the enthusiasm that you brought to the Young Avengers and you and Valentino have definitely crafted a very interesting proposal. Um, but uh, we want you to stick with this commitment. Stay. I hadn't drawn an, a regular issue of New Mutants yet, so I wasn't uh, bailing yet on a commitment. The idea of me doing this, I was told I had to wait six months. That's where all of this came from. Bob Harris, to his credit, wanted to give time for the other team. That He gave them six months notice, the, the penciling team, the artists, that they would be um, not on the New Mutants anymore, that they would be transitioning to new work. I was told that if I did a good job and I turned the book around, that I could take over as writer and artist, which I did. But at the time, you're sitting there, you're waiting, you're doing filling jobs, I'm doing What If Wolverine, I'm doing, you know, the New Mutants annual with Namorita and falling in love with her. So I really want to do the Young Avengers, and Jim Jim does too. And we are just cooking. And I am told, no, we, we really want you to stay the course. Little did Mark Grunewald know how beneficial, where George Perez said, New Mutants became career-defining work for me. Who knows if George Perez had the same career had he done Justice League and not done the Titans. I definitely wouldn't have had the same career. I owe it to Mark Grunewald, who not only hired me, but guided me years later to stay the course, stay with my commitment, emerge on the New Mutants as the new penciler, and finish the race. And I am so grateful that he did. I will always wonder what those young Avengers, because they weren't called the new Avengers, they were called the new warriors, they were called the young Avengers. I will always wonder how that would have worked out, what that would have looked like, how that would have felt. I feel like it would have been great, but I definitely, it would not have been the new mutants, which opened the door for X-Force, which then opened the door for Image. And there is a reason I was the first Image comic. There was a reason that Youngblood stood alone for three months and no one joined me. I've covered this and I'll cover it more. I was the Petri dish. I was the I was the experimental, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, sacrificial experiment that all the other guys were watching to see if, well, if Rob jumps out of this Marvel mode and goes independent with characters nobody's ever heard of and have no commitment, will there be numbers there? Will there be a living there? Will there be the same earnings that I'm making at Marvel? And we all know the answer. The answer to that was yes. I'm not sure that would have happened had Young Avengers been the case. So there is three what if, what if Terry Austin didn't ink the X-Men and did what John Byrne wanted to do in the first place? Thank God Archie Goodwin said, no, John, I'm not going to let Terry Austin ink Marvel team up. You guys are, I, 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 my design is to have you save the X-Men. They did bring it monthly. It became a legend. George Perez didn't get his dream of drawing Justice League for a long extended run because the Teen Titans that he would reboot with Marv Wolfman became the best-selling book instead and dominated his time and, and, and carved an absolute you know, notice, uh, uh, carved out his career and made it legendary. And for myself and Jim Valentino, we had different paths. Jim rode Guardians of the Galaxy, which then turned into Shadowhawk. I rode New Mutants into X-Force, which became Image Comics. And the rest is history. But I love near misses. I love what ifs. I, I love what coulda, what shoulda been. And that's what we danced with today. We, went, we walked through it. I read you from the guys who said it, so there's no doubt that you're getting it from their mouth. When George... Uh, writes it, that's exactly, I am reading you word for word, Terry Austin, word for word, so you are getting absolute their recollection of what happened during that time. And Terry wrote that 10 years ago. George wrote that 12 years ago, especially the first forward. The first one, the, you know, became a year, 2008, 2009. So, I mean, we're, we're looking at many years in the past that these guys draw on their memories. Maybe those memories aren't fresh now. Thank God they put them down so that we can enjoy them. And I loved sharing them with you today. Thank you for riding with me on another episode. I love hanging out with you guys. Love talking comics. Thank you for listening to Rob's Observations. Continue to leave positive notices. Um, write positive reviews for this show. Spread the word. Help it. Um, reach a larger audience. I love uh, getting new fans. We are bringing new fans to the platform all the time, and it's because of you guys and your enthusiasm for what I'm doing. It brings me back to the mic time and time and time again and keeps me going, and I appreciate it. I thank you so much. Keep giving me that energy. I love it. I will keep giving you my very best in return. I am on social media, on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld with the blue check, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld, blue check. That's really me. I'm going to talk. If I'm talking back to you and it has the blue check, you're really reaching me. Instagram, Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D with the blue check. That's really me. I love reading your comments, hanging out, reading your DMs, talking to you guys. You know, you guys know how much I interact with you. I love it. I'm all over Facebook. I'm all over social media. I'm easy to access, easy to reach. Thank you again for your time, your effort, your enthusiasm. I appreciate it so much. I hope that you are doing well and you guys know the drill. You are going to take care of yourself. You're going to stay safe, and we are going to talk again real soon.